I'm Tracy Sable tonight on EWTN News Nightly. The White House announces Israel will put in daily pauses on its assault on Hamas. What President Joe Biden told us today and a special report from Jerusalem. Sparring on stage. GOP candidates stand divided on how they would lead on the abortion issues. What they said and full debate analysis ahead. Doctrine decisions. What the Vatican announced about people identifying as transgender and the sacrament of baptism. What you need to know. Plus, pursuing the priesthood. As the U.S. Church spotlights vocations this week, hear the moving story of how a young priest discerned his calling. These stories and more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us. We begin in the Middle East. New tonight, the White House says Israel agreed to put in place four-hour daily humanitarian pauses in northern Gaza to allow civilians to flee. At the same time, there is a renewed diplomatic push to free hundreds of hostages abducted by Hamas, including a handful of Americans. We asked President Joe Biden about the hostage situation this morning. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. Owen? Tracy, good evening to you. We're learning tonight that Israel will announce each daily four-hour window at least three hours in advance. Meanwhile, as President Biden was walking towards Marine One today, I shouted a question to him about the hostages. It was a rather brief exchange, but noteworthy. Take a listen. So the hostages in Gaza, your message to their families, your message to the families of the hostages in Gaza. We're not going to stop till we get them out. And it was earlier just this week when President Joe Biden asked Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to institute daily pauses in the fighting. A State Department official saying today at a briefing, We believe that this is uh, an important step in the right direction. We believe that it is a uh, byproduct of the U.S. government and this administration's efforts in the region. And over at Joint Base Andrews, where President Biden was continuing on his way to Illinois, he told reporters he's been asking for even longer pauses. In addition, the president responded to a question if he was frustrated with the Israeli prime minister that he has not listened to some of the things the president asked him to do. It's taking a little longer than I hoped. President Biden also addressed domestic issues. He told reporters before boarding Air Force One there's no need for a government shutdown, which is looming if Congress does not act. I wish the House uh, just get to work. I'm not being facetious. I'm not a part of this thing. The idea we're playing games in the shutdown at this moment is just resolved. Later, President Biden visiting Belvedere, Illinois, to meet with the head of the United Auto Workers Union and highlight the reopening of an auto plant, part of the settlement of a union strike. So this opening of Belvedere again is a gigantic deal as far as I'm concerned. Just moments earlier, a person interrupted, yelling out, A long time. No, 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 let, let it go. Also tonight, a new AP Nork poll reveals nearly half of Democrats disapprove of how President Joe Biden is handling the Israel-Hamas conflict. The numbers, 50% approve, 46% do not. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly. All right, thank you, Owen. Well, the word of these pauses comes as U.S. and Israeli spy chiefs met with Qatari officials to work on a potential plan to get hostages released. Let's go now live to Jerusalem, where AP journalist Sam Mendick is standing by. Sam, good to see you. So what more can you tell us about this meeting in Qatar? 
Right. On Thursday, the CIA director was in Doha meeting with the Qatari prime minister as well as the head of Israel's intelligence agency. They were trying to figure out to discuss the release of these hostages. It's unclear what the result was of that meeting. However, there are reports that there is a deal inching closer to a potentially longer ceasefire. This would be around three days. This is according to officials within Egypt and the United Nations and a Western diplomat. This could be about three days and in the exchange for around a dozen hostages. It would be brokered by the United States, Qatar, and Egypt. Still, though, Israel's prime minister has rejected any ceasefire unless it's in exchange for all of the hostages. I spoke to a hostage negotiator who was key in the release of Gilad Shalit. He was an Israeli soldier abducted for five years by Hamas. He said that it doesn't make sense now necessarily for Israel to do a ceasefire, especially while its troops are deep in the heart of the city of Gaza because it would expose them. They would have to move to a safer place and redeploy. He said it's only worth it for them to do this if it's in exchange for a large number of hostages about 100 or 150. There are currently about 239 hostages in Gaza. They were taken when Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, killing more than about 1,400 people. During Israel's ground offensive right now into Gaza, it said that it has found the bodies of some of the hostages and it is going to bring them back to Israel for burial. Uh, really quickly, Sam, uh, we do know those Israeli troops are pushing further into Gaza City. What do you know about that operation? They are pushing further into Gaza City. Airstrikes have continued, and they are combating Hamas. This is urban combat, and it is going to get bloodier. Israel said it's already lost about 32 soldiers, and it is going to continue pushing on. I was in the south of Israel today, near the border with Gaza, and the sound of airstrikes and shelling was constant. Much of the fighting is around this main hospital in Gaza City, the Shifa Hospital, where Israel says that Hamas has its command and control center. Hamas says that Israel is just using that as a pretext to strike it. But still, there's about 60,000 people sheltering in this hospital. Many have nowhere to go, and others are severely injured. Sam, we have uh, 30 seconds left. What can you tell us about the humanitarian situation in Gaza? In 30 seconds, it's absolutely catastrophic and dire. This is what aid groups are saying. They're calling it horrific. 10,500 people have been killed. Hundreds of thousands are in the north. They aren't able to get assistance, water, food, shelter, or fuel. And people are saying that it is only going to get worse. All right. Thank you so much, Sam. Sam Mendick reporting for us live from Jerusalem tonight. Well, the United Nations Human Rights Chief weighed in today on the fighting in the Middle East, calling on both sides for brutal acts carried out since the war began. The atrocities that were perpetrated by Palestinian armed groups on the 7th of October were heinous, brutal, and shocking. They were war crimes, as is the continued holding of hostages. The collective punishment by Israel of Palestinian civilians amounts also to a war crime, as does the unlawful forcible evacuation of civilians. Meantime, in Miami, five GOP presidential candidates took to the stage last night in the third Republican primary debate hosted by NBC News. It marked the first time the candidates gathered on stage since a war broke out between Israel and Hamas. It was also fresh off the election aftermath this week, with Ohio becoming the seventh state to expand abortion since Roe v. Wade was overturned. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis had these sharp comments about the future of the pro-life movement. You got to do a better job on these referenda. I think of all the stuff that's happened to the pro-life cause, uh, they have been caught flat-footed on these referenda, and they have been losing the referenda. 
And there was a divide among the candidates over support for a 15-week federal limit on abortion. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott challenged the other presidential hopefuls to support it. Meanwhile, just miles down the road, GOP frontrunner former President Donald Trump made an appeal to Catholic voters during his own rally. What's going on with Catholics? They're after Catholics. What have Catholics done? They're after Catholics, aren't they? Now, the former president has had a busy few days coming off his testimony in a New York civil fraud trial earlier this week. He faces several indictments heading into 2024. And in news that could be a major shakeup for 2024, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, a Catholic Democrat, will not seek re-election to the U.S. Senate. In a four-minute video released on social media, Manchin says that he has accomplished what he set out to do for West Virginia. This means that the West Virginia Senate seat will likely go to a Republican in 2024. The announcement also raises the possibility that he'll run for president as an independent. He has yet to make his White House intentions known. And joining us now is Mene Ukarubu with the Wall Street Journal editorial board. Mene, great to be with you again. So that big news right there about Senator Joe Manchin. If he does throw his hat into the ring, how will that change things for the 2024 election? Well, that's an open question. What we've seen in poll after poll is that Americans are looking for a different choice from either Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Both of them are deeply unpopular, and members of their own parties would like to see challengers to them. Of course, that's what we saw in the debate stage on Tuesday night among the Republicans. And Joe Biden faces a challenger of his own among the Democrats in the form of Dean Phillips, a congressman from Minnesota. And so it's very clear that the electorate is hungry for someone who's willing to present an alternative message to these two. And it's possible that that's what Joe Manchin is thinking. Obviously, he's well known as a moderate in the Democratic Party and someone who often was able to to push his own party in the Senate towards uh, more Republican-leaning priorities um, and get a more middle-ground agenda. But to be clear, he hasn't declared necessarily that he's thinking of running for president. It's obviously something that he's mulling. Um, but the more immediate reason why he probably decided not to run for re-election in West Virginia is because he likely would lose. He's facing a challenge from Jim Justice, who's the governor of West Virginia, who's very popular. West Virginia has become a more Republican-leaning state over the past few years, and it's very likely that Manchin would have lost in a general election contest. And so after a long and somewhat successful career, it seems as if he wanted to retire rather than risk the humiliation of defeat in a general election. Yeah, not a whole lot of time left, but I do want to get to this. Uh, last night's debates where the candidates were pretty much divided on abortion. Here's what former U.N. ambassador and South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley had to say. Let's take a listen. Be honest. It's going to take 60 Senate votes, a majority of the House, and a president to sign it. So, no, we haven't had 60 Senate votes in over 100 years. We Many of your thoughts on what she had to say. Well, she's describing a real dilemma for pro-life Republicans today. On the one hand, we're in the wake of a long period after the end of Roe versus Wade, where conservatives are trying to advance limits on abortion. On the other hand, that clip you played of Ron DeSantis is accurate in that a lot of these ballot measures on abortion have leaned towards the pro-abortion side. And so if people like Tim Scott and Ron DeSantis want to advance more restrictions, they're going to have to figure out a message that's able to convince voters in some of these moderate states uh, to go along with that message. Mene, we have about 20 seconds left, but quickly, what else stood out to you during the debate? 
Yeah, I think one last thing to focus on would be the clashes on Ukraine. You have candidate like Nikki Haley, who's much more in favor of providing strong American aid for the Ukrainians' effort against Russia, and other candidates like Ron DeSantis, who are unwilling to take a clear position on it. He says he wants to end the conflict soon, but he doesn't say on what terms. And so that's another one of the big contrasts that people should be looking for as the primary debates continue. All right, we're going to leave right there. Many, thank you so much for your insights. Appreciate it. Thanks, all 48 Democratic senators sent a letter to the Biden administration to require health insurance plans to fully cover over-the-counter birth control pills. The measure was signed by 13 self-professed Catholic senators, and here they are. The letter asked the Department of Health and Human Services, Labor, and the Treasury to take concrete steps to ensure contraceptives are covered without the need for a prescription. However, the new measure would force Catholic employers to choose between the church's teachings and staying in business. Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales has the latest. Good evening. The pro-abortion Democratic lawmakers wrote the Biden administration stating that they want new guidelines for health plans giving all women, including uninsured, access to free birth control. And that's not all. Lawmakers want to eliminate any prior authorization and encourage state Medicaid programs to cover all expenses. Catholic Congressman Chris Smith, co-chair of the Congressional Pro-Life Caucus, tells me this is another directive from the Biden administration to preserve abortion on demand. Catholics who have some conscientious objection to certain kinds of birth control, uh, how dare they use the power of the state to require things be covered, uh, be paid for. Right now, the Affordable Care Act requires insurance plans to cover doctor-prescribed birth control, but these lawmakers want over-the-counter contraceptives without a doctor's consent to be covered as well. Catholic Senator Mike Braun tells me it's par for the course. That does not surprise me that they signed a letter like that. I think that is where they're elevating the, the issue of abortion and choice, and I think they're out of sync there with uh, most of America when they're pushing that particular issue. For the 13 Catholic Democrats, their proposal runs against the teachings of the Catholic Church. The Catechism states contraception is morally unacceptable and intrinsically evil. It doesn't end there. This week, Senate Appropriations Committee member and Senate Pro-Life Caucus Chair Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith questioned HHS Secretary Javier Becerra why the Biden administration is using American tax dollars to give illegal migrants abortions. How many abortions for pregnant migrant girls has the Office of Refugee Resettlement facilitated across state lines over the past year, and what was that cost to taxpayers? So, Senator, we make sure in compliance with the law that if, uh, for example, emergency services are needed, for an individual in our care, we would make sure that they provide those services. Secretary Bassetta never answered the question. The first over-the-counter birth control pill was approved by the FDA earlier this year. The drug Opil will likely become available in stores and online starting early next year. At the Capitol, Eric Rosales, EWTN News Nightly. And we have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including news from the Vatican's doctrine office. The Vatican responds to questions about people who identify as transgender and the sacrament of baptism. We'll explain. And a pro-life activist unlawfully targeted by the FBI takes a stand.
Welcome back. The Vatican's doctrine office says an adult who identifies as transgender can receive the sacrament of baptism under the same conditions as any adult, as long as there's no risk of causing scandal or confusion to other Catholics. According to the Vatican, any children or adolescents experiencing transgender identity issues may also receive baptism if well-prepared and willing. These answers are a response to questions from Brazilian Bishop Giuseppe Negri posed to the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith. Dicastery's response is signed by the Vatican's doctrine chief, Cardinal Victor Fernandez, and by Pope Francis. And here now to explain this and more is Dr. John Grabowski, moral theologian at the Catholic University of America and author of the book Unraveling Gender, The Battle Over Sexual Difference. Dr. Grabowski, good to be with you today. Um, so tell us, is this news a shift from church teaching? Great to be with you, Tracy. And the short answer is no. Um, the church has always taught that under certain conditions and properly disposed, anyone can receive baptism. Um, Justin Martyr uh, in the second century said that to be admitted to baptism, a person had to show sorrow for sin, accept the church as the teacher of truth, and already give evidence of change of life or conversion. So someone who's struggling with a discordant gender identity who manifests those things should be welcomed uh, for baptism in the church because as Pope Francis says, it's the door to the other sacraments. Yeah, and there was also a question about whether people who identify as transgender or are in a same-sex relationship, um, if they can be godparents. How did the Vatican respond to that? The Vatican said that they could, again, under certain conditions, right? And the document reminds us that canon law teaches that uh, to be a godparent, a person should be uh, someone who lives a life of faith in keeping with the function that they're taking on. In other words, the role of a godparent is to help the parents in raising the child in the faith. If a person who's struggling with same-sex attraction or discordant gender identity, who's really trying to live their Christian faith, can be of assistance to parents in that way. John, we have a, a, about a minute or so, but I do want to ask you this. I, I mean, how much of a burden do you think this may place on the average parish priest who has to discern, you know, which cases will cause scandal or not? It's a great question. Um, I, I think if you talk to a lot of parish priests, they'll, that's exactly their concern, um, that the father's going to be asked to play Solomon and to try to walk the line between uh, we don't want to drive people away from the church, but we don't want to cause scandal either. But I think uh, priests, but also parents, need to be reminded that the church teaches us that parents are the primary educators of children in the faith. So it's parents' responsibility to choose people for, to be godparents of their children who are going to do that, not just make choices about, well, we don't want to offend Aunt Jean by not including her or who's going to give the best gifts to our children. The role of a godparent is to help parents pass on the faith to their children. Yeah. Dr. John Grabowski, thank you so much for coming on and sorting this all out for us. We appreciate it. Thank you. A terminally ill infant in the U.K. has been given some more time to live following an appeal by her parents. A court will decide on an appeal by Indy Gregory's parents on where her life support will be removed. The eight-month-old suffers from a rare degenerative disease and has been receiving life-sustaining treatment 
on a ventilator in England. England's high court ruled to take Indy off of life support against the wishes of her parents. She'll now stay on life support until a decision is reached on the appeal. The Vatican Pediatric Hospital and the Italian government have offered to treat her. A Catholic father and pro-life activist Mark Hauk and his wife have filed lawsuits against the FBI and DOJ for malicious and retaliatory prosecution. This comes after Hauk's home was raided by armed federal agents back in 2022 after he was accused of violating the FACE Act. The lawsuit states that the family's seven children suffer from intense anxiety and constant fear of losing their father due to the traumatic nature of the arrest. It also mentions that Hauk and his wife suffered three miscarriages due to the stress of the FBI's conduct and prosecution. Hauk was unanimously acquitted of all charges against him back in January. Up next on EWTN News Nightly. And so I think it was on that day, July 5th, 2011, that uh, God, I think, gave me my vocation. Hear this young priest's moving story as we celebrate National Vocation Awareness Week. Welcome back. This week marks National Vocation Awareness Week in the USA, time dedicated to promoting vocations to the priesthood, diaconate, and consecrated life. And here to tell us about his own vocation story is Father C.J. Mast of the Archdiocese of Denver, where he currently serves as chaplain of Bishop Matchbuff High School. Father, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. So I understand uh, that you are a cradle Catholic, uh, perhaps maybe rebelled a little bit in your faith as a young adult. It happens. Uh, But ultimately, you reconnected with Christ in part because of focus ministry. Can you tell us more about that in your faith journey as a young adult? Absolutely. Yeah. um, When I was in high school, my senior year, I kind of went through a a depression and I had a really tough year. And at the end of that, I really started questioning the faith. And as I was beginning college, I went to Colorado State University. Uh, My first year, I said, I'm going to give myself one year to really see if the Catholic faith is true. Uh, And if not, I want to leave it because I, I don't really understand. I uh, you know, don't really have that belief. And praise God, I was actually able to be uh, introduced to focus. And uh, it was like meeting the right people at the right time. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like such a profound experience uh, that led you into considering the priesthood. Tell us about that moment in particular. Absolutely. So when I, uh, so after my freshman year of college, I was committed to Christ. I was committed to following him. Uh the idea of priesthood, though, really scared me, to be quite honest. And I didn't have any trust in him for his plan of life. And so in the middle of that summer, I ended up teaching a program for the archdiocese called Totus Tuus. And uh, in the middle of that, there was a priest that I met. He was newly ordained who took us all climbing uh, a 14er, Mount Columbia. And uh, we get up to the top and this massive storm just comes in and it's lightning. We have to come down as quickly as possible. We weren't able to celebrate mass. And so we had to come down kind of this unsafe route. It was a pretty steep, filled with a lot of large, loose rocks. And I remember someone above me yelling rock. And I look up and there's a four foot boulder coming towards me. It ends up jumping over my head and then ends up hitting my leg, which was kind of sticking up in the air and crushes my calf muscle. So this priest came down. He thought I had died, honestly. And he looks at me and he goes, do you trust me? And I was like, 
sure, I trust you, sure. Uh, and then he says, do you really trust me? And quite honestly, it was at that moment, it was as if Jesus Christ was asking me that question. Father CJ, that is a beautiful story. Uh, almost out of time, but quickly, I, I want to ask you, do you have any advice for those who may be discerning? Yeah, uh, briefly. I think uh, when I talk to high school guys, especially about discernment, I say a lot of times we might be discerning out of fear, but really we should be discerning out of love. Uh, because God, vocation is an answer to where God is calling us to love in the midst of the world and not to run away from something. Well, Father CJ, thank you so much for coming on and telling us your story. We appreciate it and God bless you. And we thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook X and Instagram at EWT at Newsnightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless.